Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today we have the second of two episode swaps with podcasts that I reached out to. This podcast episode swap is with an amazing podcast, which I kind of think of as Back from the Abyss's long lost twin separated at birth. The podcast is called Inside Eyes. It's produced in Oakland by a therapist named Laura May Northrup. And it's all about healing from sexual trauma with entheogens and psychedelics. I think this episode and Laura's podcast in general is going to blow you away. The episode I chose to share with you all is a profound story of healing from forgotten sexual trauma that was held deep, deeply in the woman's body, and then finally came forth during a life-changing ayahuasca session. This is one of the most astounding stories I've ever heard, and I think you all are going to be blown away by it. And if you like this episode of Inside Eyes, you should check out the rest. Uh, So far, Laura has one season, but she's putting together season two, hopefully in the next few months. All right, listen on. Hope you enjoy it. to Inside Eyes, and I'm your host, Laura Northrup. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Inside Eyes. I'm your host, Laura Northrup, and this series is about the use of entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. Starting with today's episode, we're moving away from speaking with professionals about entheogens and psychedelics and moving toward what the bulk of this series will be which is talking with individuals who have actually successfully used these medicines in healing from sexual trauma. I'm very excited to share these interviews with you, starting with the one you'll be hearing today. In today's episode, I interview Shan. Shan is a tattoo artist in New York City and is going to talk about her experiences healing from childhood sexual abuse with ayahuasca and about the unexpected impact that ayahuasca had on her rheumatoid arthritis. Two things to note about this episode— One, I recorded it on location in New York and didn't have a lot of control over the background sounds. So you will hear some faint sirens, car horns, and the sad repetitive cry of a smoke alarm battery that wants to be changed. It's not too distracting, just letting you know what that noise is. And two, a word of caution. Not every episode in this series contains graphic content, but this one does. None of these episodes are suitable for children. And please take care of yourself as the listener. Okay, our conversation starts with Shan talking about her life and how she came to a place of trying out ayahuasca. So when I was born, my father uh, was addicted to drugs, and we lived with my grandparents and my uncle. So it was my mother and myself and my grandparents my uncle. My father was in and out of the picture. And um, came back when I was about five, and, you know, I was always sort of a troubled um, troubled kid, dreamy, anxious, had a lot of s- sort of self-harming tics. Um, I'd bite my lip until it bled. I had a, like a permanent scar. Never really did well in school until fourth grade when my uncle passed away and my dad left in the same month. Um, and then sort of overnight, I went from being a, you know, BC student to straight A, you know, sort of uh, A-type personality, which I never was before. And from that point on, it was this um, 
continuous cycle of, um, you know, we moved a lot and be placed in gifted programs and, you know, sort of rewarded for my achievement. And then I would go through these periods of breakdown and that continued through high school. Um, I went to a magnet high school, so I had to apply to get in and started off really high achieving, high functioning. And, um, when I had sex, uh, for the first time as a teenager, uh, everything sort of got complicated again. So I went back to being skipping class, getting A's, getting C's, um, you know, did really well in the SATs, but then did poorly in all these classes I basically never went to. So um, that continued through college. I had been dating someone that I knew from high school, and um, we did end up getting married, but uh, he raped me one night when he was drunk and high. And that blew the door off on all my childhood issues. And for years, I'd been suffering with these intense physical symptoms, um, joint pain, neurological problems, you know, fogginess. When did those start? I'd say I was like 14, 15. So when I had sex again, you know, for what I thought then was the first time, they thought I had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and the tests were negative. We, we never did anything uh, while I was in high school. And then finally, in my early 20s, I was diagnosed as having rheumatoid arthritis and put on this battery of medications. Um, the medications themselves were brutal. I mean, the side effects were almost as bad as the disease itself. And um, I went through the process of getting divorced and was increasingly sick. And, and now in my 20s, dealing with my early childhood trauma and just, I really thought I was going to die. You know, if I didn't, if I didn't kill myself, the disease would kill me. Like, I really felt that. Were I, you suicidal? That's always such a hard question to answer because I've wanted to die since I was a little kid. I've had that feeling like, I want to die. I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it past 30. Like, I really believed that. I remember thinking as, as, as an eight-year-old, like, I'm not going to live past 30. Um, I've never attempted suicide, but I think for me, the thing was always when I was driving. So, you know, in New York, New Jersey, we drive a lot. And I was always just dreaming of, of veering into the oncoming lane of traffic. That was sort of the thing. And I was in a lot of car accidents. I mean, some were my fault, some were not. But I think I sort of manifested that, that desire to die you know, in, in whatever passive ways that I could, even including, you know, my body just destroying itself from the inside with this autoimmune disease. I got divorced and started to try to figure out, you know, what can I do? Like, how can I live? How can I live in, how can I live the way that I am? You know, I had started dating this guy who uh, wanted to try ayahuasca. And he said, I'm going to do this. Do you want to do this? And I thought, fuck it, like, I'm going to die anyway, like, I might as well try. And I had to get off of all the medications I was on, you know, um, low-dose chemotherapy and, a, and an immunosuppressant and prednisone and pain medications, all these things. I had to get off of them in order to take the medicine. How was that for you to, to, to come off of all those things? Um, it was both scary and a relief. I mean, leading up to taking the medicine, um, so the first month off of my immunosuppressants, there was just like a subtle shift, like it, it takes a while for it to sort of clear your system. As it got towards the, the time that I would take ayahuasca, uh, the achiness was coming back, the stiffness, so things like that were starting to return. 
So um, you were really feeling not the side effects of the medication anymore, but the actual experience of the rheumatoid arthritis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then after I took the medicine, I never needed... After I took ayahuasca, I never needed my Western medicine. And I haven't since, which is insane <laughs> to me. I mean, I never thought, you know, I never thought that would happen. Could you say more about what that first experience was like for you when you took the ayahuasca? Mm -hmm. I went into it, um, and I think this was to my advantage. I was completely defeated as a person. I was just felt like nothing. I felt I had given up on, I had just about given up on life. I was in a transitional period career-wise where I was just beginning to tattoo um, and I had no skills that I felt I could use. I didn't feel that I could provide for myself. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't like how I felt. I didn't like who I was. Um, and I was just broken, you know. And this is coming off of a two, three-year period where, um, you know, I was starting to interface with my early childhood trauma, and and that took an incredible toll on me. I mean, I was basically a hermit for a year. Mm -hmm. um, I moved upstate, and I, I taught some kids music classes. Um, that's what I went to college for. This is before or after ayahuasca? Before ayahuasca. Before, yeah. And when you say childhood trauma, were you were you aware of the sexual abuse before the ayahuasca? I, I, I always knew there was something wrong. Um, I always knew that there was something wrong and that I was sexually abused. I had ascribed it to an experience that I had when I was seven, six or seven, with a girl who was four years older than me. Um, so after we moved away from my grandparents' house, we moved away from my uncle. Um, we lived in sort of like a low-income, just apartment complex, and the neighbor girl reenacted her own sexual abuse with me. So we would play these games, and we had an imaginary friend who would tell us what to do, and invariably he told us to make me take my clothes off, and then I would masturbate f for her, basically. She would just, you know, watch me do this, you know, instruct me on how to do this. And, and I thought for most of my life that that's why I was so messed up, was that experience. Um, and that experience was always troubling for me. Even as a child, I knew that this wasn't right, but there was that, you know, my true trauma hiding underneath it, um, protected by this sort of veil of idealization. I mean, I idealized my uncle, my abuser, um, because when I was a kid, he was the only one who paid any attention to me, really. You know, my father was in and out struggling with his drug issues. My mother was working all the time. But my uncle played with me, and he bought me birthday gifts, and he read to me and he actually cared about me, you know, I felt was the only one that really paid attention to me. So yeah, I didn't want to give up that, the warmth of that attention that he gave me, you know, for, for me to, to connect that with the fact that he hurt me. I mean, it, it would take away the only safety that I did feel in my childhood, you know, he was the one that hurt me more than anyone, but he was also the one that sheltered me. So I sort of had to give that up. I had to give up that memory of that nice, safe, loving place 
you know, I had to sacrifice it to the truth, which was that it wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a loving place. It was an abusive place, you know? I'm really glad you're speaking to that because I think a lot of people who, especially as a kid, a lot of sexual abuse happens where the people who get the closest and kind of, there's a lot of abuse that happens through the realm of giving attention and yeah. being, quote, loving and right. then gaining the level of trust to um, abuse and, you know, yeah. betray a child like that. And I think that's a really, um, it's just a really hard path to walk as an adult to be able to sit yeah. with the complexity of that. Oh, yeah, because, you know, it's not just, I say it's not one-sided. It is one-sided because he, as an adult, abused me as a child. But, you know, we're all human and, and we all want love. So, you know, I would cling to him. Like, I would run to him. I would want to be around him. Like, I loved him. I idolized him, you know. He, he gave me what I needed, desperately needed. And I became complicit in protecting the secret of his abuse of me. Partially because he told me that my mother would die if she ever knew. And I believe that. I really believe that. Um, but partially because I didn't want to lose the only place where I was really special and, and valued, you know, I felt at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So. In that first ayahuasca journey, I'm imagining that you have done more than one journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In that first journey, could you talk a little bit about what happened for you? It was tremendous. It was because prior to that point, I hadn't identified my uncle as my abuser. He died when I was 10, and um, that was incredibly hard for me. I'm one of 13 cousins. You know, my, my mother was one of eight children. And out of everybody, he left everything to me, everything that he had, which wasn't a lot. But his personal possessions, like everything was for me. What little money he had, he left to me. Um, and everybody my whole life was like, you know, he loved you. You were so special to him. And, and, and I, I, I wasn't able, prior to that point, prior to trying ayahuasca, I wasn't able to identify him as the person who did those things because it was too painful. But that first experience with ayahuasca, I, I'll, I'll tell you what happened because I have such a clear memory of it. I mean, I felt I was the only one in the room who was completely still the whole night. I didn't purge. I didn't have any, um, I was just completely still, like like a mummy. I was sitting with my arms crossed, laying on the ground with my arms crossed. And in that pose, I felt all my muscles like sort of contracting and pulsing, like I was working this thing out. And there was this sensation that I was laying on a bed of dead leaves, you know, in the jungle. And, and a woman appeared above me, and I knew that she was a doctor. And... The only thing I did do physically throughout the night was I kept turning my head back and opening my jaws really, really wide. And every time that would happen, I had the sensation that she was shoving her arm down into my throat, down into my stomach. And in my stomach, she would grab these leeches. They were like black, oily leeches, huge slugs, you know? And she would pull them out of my stomach and pull them out of my mouth. And every time that she would do that, I would relive a memory. Every slug was a memory. So I went and I relived every moment that was really horrific for me. And I would, me, the adult me, as a third-party observer, would go back to that memory and see what happened to the child me. 
And at the end of every memory, she, the doctor, would, would crush the slug. And then I, the adult version of me, I, I had a gun. And I would go over to my child self that was suffering and I would put one bullet in my head and kill myself in that moment and lay it to rest. And that happened for, I think it was like 11 or 12 really pivotal moments that were incredibly painful for me. And at the end, after I had killed myself in all of those moments, I felt her gather up my dead body, you know, and she laid me in a pile of leaves and, and covered my body with leaves. And then I saw myself being eaten by maggots and worms, and, and it was calming and comforting. It was this incredible sense of relief. And while that was happening, there was a part of me that was riding on this panther that was almost like, it was like it was made of wind. It was flying around, and, and it went back to him, and it blew poison into his lungs. Him, meaning your uncle? My uncle. Yeah. He died when I was 10. He died suddenly of pneumonia. He was 42, you know, had been clean for a couple of years at that point, so wasn't abusing drugs. My mother says he didn't have AIDS, which another of my uncles that passed did. And I knew he was an intravenous drug user, so it was possible, but she swears he didn't have AIDS. He just got sick one day and got a cold and refused to do anything about it. And then it got so bad that he just slipped into a coma. And by the time they brought him to the hospital, it was too late and he died. And I felt both that I had, that me, I was responsible for killing myself, my childhood self, laying that to rest, and that I had killed him. You felt that during the... During the ayahuasca, ayahuasca experience, yeah. that, that that was sort of the culmination of everything that had happened. That in that moment, I completed the cycle where I, I, I went with this panther back and I blew that poison in his lungs. And he died. And I felt finally that it was complete, that that whole bubble of events was complete in that moment. And when I woke up in the morning, I felt alive again. I felt reborn. Like, I, I can live now. I know that a lot of sexual abuse survivors feel afraid of what they might see in oh, their ceremonies. It's horrible. And I know that, you know, it sounds like you, when you said that it helped, that you were a defeated person, yeah. that you were just like ready and willing to do whatever. But I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, what you're describing, reliving yeah. and re-witnessing. I'm imagining that could have gone either way. And I'm wondering what in you was ready to surrender to that and what made it not, it sounds like it was not re-traumatizing, that it was healing. And I guess I'm wondering if you have a sense of what it was going on for you or inside of you or how you approached the medicine that allowed it to be that way. Again, like I said, because I was completely defeated, it honestly felt when I was laying on this bed of leaves and the doctor woman was standing over me, it felt like emergency surgery. Yeah. Like when you're brought into the ER and all these people are standing over you and there's this bright light in your face and they're like, well, you know, there's a 20% chance that if we do the surgery, she'll die, but, you know... She, she'll definitely die if we don't do the surgery. Yeah. I had no spiritual, psychic, whatever you want to call it. I had no psychic energy to fight what was happening. I knew that I would die if I didn't get help. I knew it. I felt it going into the ceremony. I was like, I'm, I am dying, and this is my last chance. Yeah. This is my last hope. So you really were, you, it sounds like you were in a complete state of surrender. Yeah. I was completely surrendered. I, I had nothing in me to, to resist. Yeah. There was no fight left. You know, there was no fight left and it helped. I, I needed to be there to, I think 
the power of that treatment, the power of that emergency intervention, you know, was proportional to the, to pr proportional to my need, you know. Can you say more about how it helped in terms of like, it sounds like you woke up the next morning and there was a lot of relief. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, can you say, yeah, next morning, next day, but also. Yeah. Yeah. It felt, honestly, it did feel a lot like recovery from surgery uh, because I woke up, you know, grateful, um, tired. With that sort of post-ceremony, um, there's, I wouldn't call it a glow, um, but there's some sort of energy that stays with you and has with me for every ceremony that I've done um, for a couple of days, maybe a week after. Um, and then the real work started because it's like once the glow faded, it's like I was discharged from this psychic hospital and I had to then do the real work of unpacking everything that I'd seen. You know, and that involved, um, you know, this whole time I've been in therapy. Yeah. Um, and I've been with my, my therapist for six, seven years now, and I, I, I trust my therapist. And that's been, I don't, I think if I didn't have that to fall back on, it would have been incredibly hard to integrate what I did see. Yeah. So that was a big part of, big part of it. The process. Yeah. yeah. Or is. Um, yeah. Continually, um, both in preparation for it and also unpacking the information. And my partner at the time, you know, was supportive in helping me move through those difficult memories. And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of personal unpacking, a lot of work in therapy, a lot of breaking down, and then a lot of work with my family. It became a sort of project to tell my mother, tell my father, deal with their reactions, try to understand them as people and what led them to realize or not realize what was happening to me at the time. Um, you know, both my parents have early childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. So I understand why they missed all the obvious signs. Now, <laughs> I was angry my whole life at them for never protecting me, you know, mm -hmm. because other people noticed. I mean, I was always in school would get called down to the guidance counselor and they would ask me if everything was okay at home. And you know, people knew something was up, but, but nobody asked the right questions, you know. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever expressed to me that my body was my own, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I wasn't going to say, oh, you know, somebody hurt me. Because in my mind, he wasn't hurting me, even though it was incredibly physically painful. In my mind, it was something else. I didn't have the vocabulary or, or, the, or the concepts to describe what was happening to me. So... When people would try to ask about it, you know, when concerned adults would sort of try to figure out why I was the way I was, like, I didn't know how to talk to them and they didn't know how to ask me. So, so nobody really got to the bottom of it. You know, even though all the signs were there, I mean, I was difficult, um, you know, very, very um, isolated as a child. I couldn't play with other kids, you know, had recurring nightmares my whole life. Um, and when I began to unpack them as an adult, it was very clear that the symbolism in the nightmares was incredibly um, representative of what happened to me. But yeah, it was a lot of work. It was unpacking the nightmares, talking to my family, you know, trying to learn how to give myself what I needed to survive, which on some days was to not leave the house or not go somewhere alone or 
make myself leave the house or make myself go somewhere alone. It, it, it was an incredibly long process. Um, and I, I took the medicine, pretty much have taken the medicine continuously ever since, you know, every four months, every six months, you know, I'll feel that need to go back and, and, and get another treatment, you know, get a little more work done. And, you know, I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I can do that. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what has happened to your symptoms around rheumatoid yeah. arthritis and just kind of generally how you feel about your life yeah. at this point. Totally. So I'm not a doctor or a scientist. Um, I went to music school. <laughs> I haven't taken any post high school science classes, but I've read a lot about the um, interrelation of stress um, and trauma-induced stress, these sort of um, prolonged stress responses that people who have experienced trauma enter into. My rheumatologist told me, you know, people with early childhood trauma are some, you know, significant factors more likely to develop autoimmune issues later in life than the average population. And that's because this, you know, this, the essence of post-traumatic stress disorder is that your body doesn't know how to leave that excited state where you're trying to react to trauma. From what I understand, you know, it's particularly bad for people who were um, both prolonged to extend, uh, exposed to prolonged trauma. So it's not just one single event, you know, it's multiple events over a long period of time um, where you have no recourse, uh, you have no ability to escape. So you're physically restrained or you're physically dependent upon the person that's abusing you. Um, and, you know, all of those things were true. I was, you know, extremely vulnerable as a three to five year old child, dependent upon the adults around me for basic survival, you know, and abused by one of my primary caregivers. Um, and on top of that, when he would abuse me, he would physically restrain me. And because of that, I think I most often get stuck in uh, the freeze mode, you know, it's fight, flight, and freeze. Um, and that stress, that cortisol overload, um, just like, you know, your adrenal glands are blown out, like whatever, your, your body is just on hyperdrive all the time. I mean, I experienced that my whole life. Um, it sort of like gave me a funny insight into children with autism. I mean, I, I worked with children with autism for a long time. I, I taught them music and I worked at a school for autistic children. And, um, you know, people with autism get hyperstimulated. Um, they don't know how to necessarily filter the intake of information. And I experienced that myself because I, I wasn't able to turn off my hypervigilance. I was always, my head was always on a swivel looking for danger. Um, I don't have a sense of white noise. So, you know, Sounds that will fade into the background for most people will just continue to be in my awareness. And I get so overwhelmed and, and, and frazzled by just the um, basic sensory information of life. Um, and I felt it in my body, you know, my, my pain and my stiffness and, and all these things. Most people with autoimmune diseases have flare-ups during times of stress. And it's because the body's stress response is directly related to, you know, your immune system. And I think... The reason why I was able to stop taking Western medicine after taking ayahuasca is because I was able to neutralize the threat. And now, after having, you know, all these experiences with ayahuasca, I have 
a much greater ability to um, turn off my stress response if I get triggered by something. So now I have actual periods where I don't, I'm genuinely not in a trauma-informed stress response mode, you know, where that was my default mode my whole life. Yeah. You were uh, living that every day. Every day. Yeah. Yep. Every day. Your body can only recover when it's in recovery mode, when you have the, the safety to relax and to recuperate. I'll still feel, um, you know, joint pain and stiffness um, in times of stress, you know, if I'm overworked or um, if there's things going on in the news that are incredibly distressing like there is right now. Um, I, I have been pretty achy lately. Um, but I know now it's, you know, related to my stress level and my, um, I'll know when to step back. And, and I have other plant medicines that I can call on when I need that break from stress. Um, when I need that sort of um, cleansing from this trauma mode, you know? You know, my Western medicines, the immunosuppressants and the, the steroids, um, were all for the symptoms of my disease. But the ayahuasca helps neutralize the cause of my disease, which is prolonged stress. You also mentioned um, when we were uh, prepping and talking about the interview um, today that um, tattooing is something that's been a really important part of your process. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about tattooing and healing and how you think about that. For sure. Yeah, I've never had any like quote unquote conventional like self-harm habits. Um, other than, you know, just sometimes nervous, like skin picking or, you know, when I was a little kid, when I would bite my lip until it bled or things like that. But, you know, other people who have experienced trauma would be familiar with that sort of like totally numb, dissociated, just disconnected, feel absolutely nothing state. You know, I'd go through these cycles where the stress would build and I would feel this incredible tension and anxiety. And then I would reach some sort of breaking point and then I would be numb for a period of time. A lot of people with early childhood trauma or trauma in general turn to cutting um, because when you're in a completely dissociated mode, the only times that you feel alive are when you're in, um, you know, like physical or, you know, emotional danger. And I think that's the drive that's behind that, like, um, repetition compulsion where, like, people who have been abused end up in abusive relationships later in life over and over and over again. Um Because when you're dissociated and you feel numb inside, the only time you feel alive again is when you get that trauma reaction. And um, for me, you know, I didn't cut, um, but I discovered getting tattooed. And this is maybe a little graphic for, you know, most people, but this is part of my experience. So, you know, being a young, small child, when an adult man rapes a young child, it's incredibly physically painful. It's it's, it's annihilation-level pain. I mean, you really think you're going to die. You think, am I going to die? This, this hurts so bad. I think this will kill me. Yeah. You know? So it's physical torture yeah. on top of the psychological torture. And, you know, this is like, sounds kind of crazy for me to say as a tattoo practitioner, but tattoos are physically painful. It's a physical trial. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a torture that you subject yourself to. Yeah, and, and I would get a sort of high, a sort of lift when I was getting tattooed because that extreme physical prolonged agony would trigger this bodily stress response. 
And then I would feel alive again because suddenly, you know, the adrenaline or whatever is pumping and then my senses are awake and I'm embodied because I'm being physically harmed <laughs> to a degree, you know. Um, and that became a sort of ritual for me that I guess took the place of what could have been more plainly destructive habits. But the aftermath of it was in any a secondary high because every time I would get a tattoo, it would be as though I was laying claim to that part of my body again. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, you write your name on your stuff. You know, like I'm, I'm writing my name on my body. Like this is mine. Like this is mine. This is mine. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm taking it back. And, and you can see now that it's mine because I've put my mark on it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you try to put your mark on it. But no, I'm putting my mark on it now. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really beautiful to listen to you describe the complexity <laughs> of that and the healing aspects of it. And you are a tattoo artist. Yeah. It sounds like this is a part of the value system and belief system that also goes into your work. A hundred percent. Not only because I, I believe in the power of tattooing um, for people with and without trauma to, to interface with their bodies and to, to take ownership of their bodies, but it's also influenced my practice in general because I'm, I'm hyper aware of that sense of physical violation. Um, so to become a practitioner, you know, it was really hard for me in the beginning to know that I was inflicting pain on people. Or you reach that point where you can tell that people don't really want to be there because it hurts. And then you yourself have to push through to finish the finish the piece. Um, but I try to make people feel that they have agency at all times to pause if they need to or take breaks or whatever they need to get through that experience I try to make it collaborative and not um, not be re-traumatizing because I, I have had experiences being tattooed um, where I felt physically uncomfortable and it was re-traumatizing. Um, so I, I, I've had more redemptive experiences than re-traumatizing experiences. But yeah, anytime you submit yourself, anytime you submit your body to the care and the manipulation of another human, I mean, there's incredible trust involved in that. Um, and I think there's room in there's room in the practice um, to be healing, to be, it's not just an aesthetic practice. I mean, I think it is a, a transfigurative practice and it, it can be, you know? So something that I've been asking people in these interviews is specifically about healing that they re- experience around people who were not necessarily the abuser, but um, the other people in your life who obviously are intimately connected to the experiences you've had um, because there can be so much wounding around Mm -hmm. that. And you mentioned earlier um, about the anger of, you know, why aren't my mom or dad noticing what's going on or, you know, responding. Um, And I wonder if you could speak to that, if there has been healing that's come through the use of ayahuasca in terms of your relationships with those kinds of people in your life. Definitely. Um, There definitely has. Uh, it's still a process, uh, ongoing process right now. Um, I, I may have mentioned earlier, you know, both my parents experienced early childhood trauma. Um, my father was adopted and spent some time in an orphanage, which in the 50s was, you know, in Hudson County, New Jersey. It was probably a pretty insane place. Um, and my mother... That whole side of the family, I mean, there's just so many issues to unpack. Um, Probably too many to kind of uh, go into detail about, but basically, you know, this trauma is intergenerational. 
Um, it's, and it's passed down. It's a cycle that's passed down and passed down. And, and in one of my later ayahuasca ceremonies, I remember having the sensation that my whole, um, like genetic history was like a huge tree and like an inverted evergreen tree. And the point of it was pointing directly down the top of my head. Like, you know, this is generations and generations of abuse. Um, and I, I had to push back up against all of that to stop the cycle and say like, no, we're not going to keep doing this. We're not going to internalize this trauma and then replay it again. Like I'm not going to allow my early childhood issues to um, interfere with my ability to, to stop this trauma going forward. Um, and I know that that's what happened with my parents when I was young. You know, they couldn't connect to the fact that I had been sexually abused because it was too painful for them. I mean, to connect to that, they would have to connect with what happened to them when they were children. And, and they weren't equipped for that, you know? They didn't have this medicine. They didn't have the space. They didn't have the money or the luxury or the time. You know, they didn't have therapy. They didn't have any of that. So um, in talking to my parents, you know, they have revealed so much to me about what they've gone through. And they've, you know, it seems like begun to maybe like look back at some of the stuff that they've had in a box on a shelf for their whole lives, you know? It's helped my relationship with my mother in particular because, you know, I, not only was I angry at her for not protecting me, but she looks like my uncle because that was her brother. I mean, they had a similar voice. They had similar mannerisms. So I remember times when, like, she would say and do things that reminded me of him, and I would just hate and fear her for that, you know? And, um... I think it's been really freeing to to take to ascribe the pain and the rage to the right person, you know, and to sort of contextualize and 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 really integrate all of the factors that led to the things that happened. You know, it's m made it easier for me to see my parents as humans, complex humans, and not just these monolithic figures that either failed or didn't fail me when I was little, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's been tremendously helpful for sure. Yeah, if my mother was in better health, I would definitely want her to experience these medicines. But, you know, everybody has to come to it in their own way. You can't just, you know, you can't be like, here, look, take this. This is, this will be great for you. Like, it has to be this self-driven thing. Like, like I was drawn to it, I knew, because I, I needed it. And I, it came into my life right at the right time, mm -hmm. you know? Maybe she doesn't have to take it directly because I took the medicine and then I'm trying to feed that out through the relationships in my life, you know? Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, it sounds like yeah. the healing work you're doing for yourself is also in turn supporting the healing of your family, regardless of whether they decide to partake in ayahuasca or other kinds of yeah. Yeah, healing practices. I mean, that's so important because it's that system. I mean, it's, it's this huge network of idea and culture and um, just human cultural practices of um, denial and dissociation are what allows these cycles of abuse to continue. So like, we have to push back into our families. We have to push back into our social networks. Otherwise, what happened to me is just going to happen to more and more people. And then it's going to happen to more and more people after them. So yeah, it, 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 bystand, nobody's a bystander. There's, there's no bystanders in, in the system of abuse, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 
you meaning yes, we're all a part of it. Yeah. 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 This leads perfectly into the last thing that I want to ask you about, which you're sort of already talking about, but I was really moved by your reasons for wanting to do this interview and share your story. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I suffered tremendously from what happened to me, you know, and I know that what happened to me is happening to thousands and thousands of people right now, children, you know, um, and that some of them are going to grow up to be like my uncle, you know, if they don't have that intervention, if we don't as a, as a, a species, like kind of wake up and, and put aside our own difficult, um, past, you know, or, or integrate those difficult pasts so that we can see what's happening in the present. There were so many times that, that people could have intervened. I mean, if I, if I describe it now, like, you know, um, Financially burdened mother, drug addicted, absent father, you know, uncle, drug addict, you know, lives with his parents at age 30, whatever, never had any real relationships. Do you want to leave your kid alone with the drug addicted, weirdo, antisocial person because other family and it's normal and it's fine? Or do you want to, like, get in touch with your senses, analyze the situation, like, trust your instinct about, like, ooh, something bad could be happening here. This doesn't feel quite right. I remember so many times when I, I, I have these memories of looking at people and sensing that they knew something wasn't quite right. And then they didn't have, they couldn't push past that um, being polite or being whatever you want to call it. They couldn't push past it to, to intervene, you know? And it would have been so easy to intervene. All somebody had to do would be to say to me as a child, like, something simple, like, if somebody's hurting you, no matter who they are, tell someone. Or, nobody should hurt your body. Or, nobody should touch you there. Or, that's, that's a, a, I don't know, there's, there's so many things that people could have said and done that they didn't because it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's uncomfortable to hear about. It's difficult to navigate and... We're so repressed as a culture that we just would rather ignore it and let it happen, you know? Well, it's not happening directly to me, so it doesn't matter to me, so I'm going to shut it off because I don't even like to think about it. And, and when you do that, you leave that child in the care of that person who's going to go home and rape them, you know? You, you, you take away the lifelines. Our, our connections to each other are our lifelines, so... When we shut off from each other, we sever those lifelines, you know? And that leaves a lot of us out to sea alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to talk about it. We need to have a conversation about it. Because what shocked me the most about my own recovery from my childhood sexual abuse is how many other people have experienced the same thing. It's, it's shocking how many people have experienced the same thing. If it's happening to all of us, if it's so ubiquitous, like, why isn't anybody talking about it? Like, we need to talk about it. It can't stay in the shadows. If it stays in the shadows, it's going to keep happening. Many thanks to Shan for sharing her story. And thank you for listening. If you would like to check out Shan's tattoo work, you can find her on Instagram with her handle at Needle Siren. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. To stay connected and find out about my other projects, you can follow me on Instagram at Laura May Northrup. And finally, many, many thanks to Joey Seward at Leftfield Studios for volunteering a lot of additional audio engineering to make this series possible. If you need an audio engineer, he's excellent. You can find his website in the show notes. Until next time.